Welcome to the Observatory. I'm Jessica Hoffman. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. On each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. This episode is sponsored by Designers and Books, advocates for books as important sources of inspiration for creativity and innovation. For more information, visit designersandbooks.com. There's a recent article in The Independent uh, that quoted a professor at Central St. Martin's in London. She's called Dr. Melanie Dodd, and it was an article about libraries, but really the principle of what she said could apply to any space. The fundamentals of architecture, uh, said Professor Dodd, is not how it looks, but how we feel it through the way it allows us to act, behave, think, and reflect. So this got me thinking about things other than libraries, and in particular a piece that was in The Guardian this week about what it is to live in a six-by-nine-foot cell. The story they published is called Six by Nine. It uses 360-degree virtual reality to put you right in that cell uh, and try to understand, try to imagine by feeling what it is to experience that kind of epic isolation from other human beings. Michael, I think you actually looked at this. You, you have to have Google Cardboard, I think. So Google Cardboard, to those of our listeners who might not know, is a very inexpensive virtual reality headset, if you will, just made out of a uh, piece of cardboard with some eyepieces in it. You drop your iPhone with an app loaded on it into it, and uh, it, you get a remarkably convincing virtual reality experience. There may be a lot of people on this side of the Atlantic that got Google Cardboard when the New York Times sent it out with one of their stories back, I believe, in November. And you really do get a convincing and immersive sense of what it's like to be in a uh, six by nine cell. Then it takes you through what a day in the cell is like, what it's like to get a meal there, how you pass the time, gives you a sense of uh, the lights going on and off. And then it, it actually gets more, uh, I was going to say poetic, but it's actually more surreal or nightmarish, where it starts talking about kind of the effect of being in this room, has uh, real audio quotes from real prisoners. And there's one moment that I thought was particularly haunting in it where uh, one of the uh, interviewees describes this kind of -of out-of-body sensation you have of sometimes when you really just sort of start to lose it in the cell, you actually feel like you're floating up above it, up towards the ceiling. And in fact, you do that while you're looking at this app. And it's very, very powerful. In 2009, in The New Yorker, the writer and physician Atul Gawande. So here's how he describes a slightly larger 13 by 8 foot cell. A four inch thick concrete bed slab jutted out from the wall opposite the door. A smaller slab protruding from a side wall provided a desk. A cylindrical concrete block in the floor served as a seat. On the remaining wall was a toilet and a metal sink. So you're not clothed. They've given you these regulation undergarments. Everything is white or off-white. And the only thing you have besides the plastic cup and the soap is a pad of paper and a ballpoint pen. And this is 23 hours a day in a space like this. Jessica, it's uh, interesting to compare the experience of reading what I thought was a typically beautifully written piece in The New Yorker on the subject versus the experience of having this highly controlled, designed, art-directed experience that The Guardian put together in their 6x9 app, which is conveying the same thing. And I have to admit, there's something even more than just merely even watching a documentary about it. It's not just that it's that it's got a vivid visual component, but it's something about the immersive experience is so dreamlike or nightmarish, actually, 
that I think it's actually kind of um, remarkably indelible. And I can almost say that if the subject of solitary confinement comes up again, what will be conjured up in my mind immediately will be the experience of that app, as if I was in that room in real life. So uh, it's still early days with people trying to figure out how to use VR as a journalistic tool or as a literary medium or a narrative medium, but I think this is a really, really interesting example of how it can be done. Something that struck me based on the two quotes that you had, Jessica, um, at the beginning um, about um, designing spaces that are uh, great for people, that make people feel good, and it occurred to me that um, the, the, the task you get as a designer, because all these spaces are designed, prisons are designed, solitary confinement cells are designed, the spec you're given to design against is almost to uh, make it be a space that's designed to make people feel bad. Is this fit work for designers, do you think, Jessica? I think designers have always wanted to have their own Hippocratic Oath, right? First do no harm. And, right. and I think it's becoming actually a question on a lot of people's minds. Isn't the American Institute of Architects doing something about this? Yeah, this has been actually um, quite a controversial subject. A few years ago, this organization called Architects, Designers, Planners for Social Responsibility proposed that the uh, AIA, the American Institute of Architects, a professional organization that represents architects in the United States, proposed that they take a policy stance against their members designing um, things like execution chambers or spaces designed for torture or cruel human degrading treatment. Uh, you might consider a, um, an isolation chamber like the one we're talking about as an example of one of those things. Um, a few years ago, the AIA did consider this and they were loath to take the position only because I think their view was once you start dictating what kinds of things the members can and can't design, it kind of constitutes a slippery slope. And then uh, can you design, you know, a smoking lounge uh, at, a, uh, at an airport? You know, there's all sorts of possible things that you could actually say uh, the members should not be permitted to design. However, um, there's something just so um, bluntly horrifying, I think, about some of these things that uh, uh, the AIA is actually... Um, uh, reconsidering that proposal to uh, prohibit their members from designing certain things, and they're considering it right now. I think it's actually quite daring. It actually is something that has to do with the way professionals need to behave to be considered professionals. You just it can't just be um, you know if it's legal uh, and there's someone willing to pay for it, I'll do it. A profession really has to exercise a conscience. I think what's interesting is that. Prisons do exist. Um, they're not meant to be happy places. And the challenge is, you know, is there a way to use design to actually make them do their jobs better, to actually not merely, um, you know, house people or separate them from society, but actually, you know, reform, rehabilitate, or kind of provide a place for transformation. And I think work's being done in that regard, too. Does it concern you that there's an attempt to maybe falsely ennoble the practice of design by creating these larger societal goals that might not really be realistic? Um, 
Well, I think uh, design, <laughs> mean, design you could, you know, no, I have to laugh because I think um, design could use all the false and nobilization that it can get, I think. Uh, most designers, actually, I sort of sometimes think have this kind of ethos, which is I'm very, very selective um, about what clients I work with. Um, I only work with clients who said they want to work with me. You know, and it doesn't really matter who they are or right, anything right, else, you know. Right, it's sort of like, you know, right. um, we, we sort of look for clients that just have the, past this sort of like very important binary threshold of, uh, of are they a good client or a bad client. And the good clients are ones that actually like your work and are willing to hire you and the bad clients are all the rest That's of That's my point. A friend of mine who once interviewed a nanny and said, I'm looking for someone who will be kind and gentle with my children. Are you? <laughs> I mean, you walk them down the primrose path of accepting what you want. And right, it's the rare designer who can choose to really be that picky and also to, to really not look so deeply into the consequences of the actions of your clients. I mean, okay, okay. So let me, some... let, me, let me ask you this hypothetical question then. Yeah. If you were approached by, say, a prison to be a design consultant to them, given that prisons exist and will probably exist for the foreseeable future, would you engage with that client? Uh, That's an uh, excellent question. Thinking, that, excellent thinking question. that somehow you can bring, you can make design, um, you can use design to somehow make it a more effective, more humane, more ethical, but still Right, and I think why this is such an interesting question is because it's a specific instance of where you can actually do something. Another professor at Central St. Martin's runs Make Right, which is supposed to teach prisoners empathy through design thinking. Now, wait, now let's wait, stay wait, away wait, from the wait, language prison, for a minute. Prisoners, prisoners actually in jail do, doing design Prisoners thinking? in yeah. jail learning through design to become more empathic individuals. Hmm. There's a pilot project they've done actually, I believe, working in Gujarat, in India, working with a team at NID, which is the National Institute of Design. Uh, using uh, working with prisoners to use their knowledge of crime to design objects that are resistant to crime. Now, for example, a pickpocket might slice the pocket of a man's trousers, and one of the prisoners suggested uh, double-binding them with thread so they're not as easy to tear or, or cut with a knife. Right. So here you're actually, I suppose one could say, ennobling the skills of the pickpocket to sort of re-strategize and reverse engineer that knowledge to create something that through design practice uh, shifts the, the, the possible into the uh, preventative, right? Mm -hmm. So, and that's actually interesting. So the, the prisoner is him or herself ennobled by a skill set that formerly was punishable that now becomes something that they can turn around to create something that is strengthened by that knowledge towards a better good. The designer in this context, from what I've read, is working in concert with the prisoner or the, the accused, the offender, to create something that shifts the balance between good and bad, using some kind of practical design capability. You know, given that uh, prisons are actually carefully calibrated environments that are actually kind of remarkable design environments when you think about it because there are a few experiences that human beings can have where every aspect of them from the architecture to the lighting to the experience design to the social design has all been minutely 
worked out minute by minute, inch by inch to sort of deliver a specific effect. I think if you were talking about using design to reform that experience to make it, you know, again, more effective and more humane, there's both the design of that six by nine cell on one hand, but maybe more importantly, it's like actually, you know, what kind of experiences are you actually uh, delivering there to the prisoners? And I think this actually sounds really, as, as, as much, you know, when I heard about design thinking in prisons, I just pictured... Uh, Post-it notes and sales. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Kind, kind of cunning <laughs> inmates fashioning shivs out of post-it notes, you know, and breaking up. <laughs> or, or, or braiding them together to create ropes to lower themselves from the windows. But um, design thinking is benighted, as it can seem sometimes, as a discipline, actually at its root, really is just about how uh, people can work together to think through problems. And I think both as a way of delivering solutions, whether it's a new way of designing a pocket that can support a pickpocket, but more importantly as a way of providing a experience to a prisoner where, as you said, their expertise is actually being respected and they're being respected as a human being that's making a contribution by forcing them to be empathetic with the victim and trying to figure out how their knowledge could be used to protect rather than harm. I think it's actually really promising and really interesting. I think it's just one instance, but I'm sure there are lots of other ones out there. Here's where this doesn't work for me. Uh, she says, the head of this program, that she wants to develop empathy in the prisoners who shut off empathy to survive, as well as in the volunteers who can understand prisoners better. This whole concept of empathy, which is a new buzzword in design, is, I think, a big red flag. I do not think you can teach empathy. I think you can teach empathic listening. I think you cannot teach. It's like teaching someone to have a conscience. It's an extremely tall order. There is a, a, an argument against empathy. We talked a few weeks ago, Michael, about uh, someone who was quoted in The Guardian, a woman who said that we have to be very careful to not overstep the bounds of feeling good just because we uh, express sympathy with the Syrian refugees, right? Mm. So it's, it's sort of the Facebook thumbs up emoticon, like I've done my bit, I've been this good soldier to sort of express the happy face, the sad face, whatever. And, and I, we, we talked about it because it is such an easy mechanism to turn on and off. We, and, and, and I mean, I think really it underscores a lot of celebrity culture. And the person who is, for me, the great advocate and spokesperson for, you know, wait, let's slow down and look at this, is a guy here at Yale called Paul Bloom. He's a psychologist. He's writing a book about why empathy is a bad thing, right? So it's a bad thing because in his view, it blinds you to the long-term consequences of your action, right? So he sees empathy as a kind of selfish moralizing. And it's a very interesting argument. And I think one that deserves mention here in our discussion, because I think it's so easy to say, I'm a social designer. I'm an empathic designer. Well, what does that really mean? I think actually the prison example of working with these people in India, this is the closest I've come to thinking that's kind of interesting. I mean, it's a very simple concept. But to, to, to quote Paul Bloom, he makes the case between what he calls warm glow altruists, mm -hmm. right? So you yeah, give yeah. a little to a lot of charities, you get this warm glow rush of caring, caring in quotes, right? Every time you, you, know, you express the sad face because another Syrian refugee has you know, been in a, in a capsized boat. But when you do that, it doesn't do as much good as being what he calls an effective altruist, which is resisting empathic engagement as a rush, as this feel-good thing that doesn't look at the bigger picture. And the reason I think this is important is because design is, to me, at the end of the day, 
about consequence. So when you talk about designers uh, looking at their clients in terms of, I'll take anybody who likes me, you're right. That's not looking at the long-term consequence. But I think empathy is a really tricky word. We have to be careful not to overuse it, not to abuse it, and to not give ourselves too much credit. And we really need to think about the consequences of our actions as the ultimate design deliverable. Jessica, I'm with you. I think that um, there is important work that designers in every discipline can contribute to the world. What I often am most exasperated by are people that are just obviously have decided that they want to um, do something that makes them feel better. So they do a gesture that's so often ineffective. I think that graphic designers are famous for, you know, let's respond to some global calamity with a pro bono poster competition. You know, you're just better off actually taking the time you would spend doing your clever poster and, you know, figuring out what your time would be worth and just writing a check for that amount. And I felt this way for a long time since I read this novel by the writer Richard Price. Uh, It was published in 1992. It's called Clockers. And um, I happened to... um, have this quote saved right here in my office and because it's just so telling. Clockers is a story uh, of a drug dealer named uh, whose name is Strike in the book and it describes his desperate day-to-day existence in harrowing detail and one scene is set while he's visiting his parole officer and I will now quote from this book, okay? The walls of the waiting room were hung with black and white cautionary posters, encircling strike with admonitions, the subjects ranging from AIDS to pregnancy to crack to alcohol, each one a little masterpiece of dread. Strike hated posters. If you were poor, posters followed you everywhere. Health clinics, probation offices, housing offices, daycare centers, welfare offices. They were always blasting away with you with warnings to do this, don't do that, be like this, don't be like that, smarten up, control this, stop that. That phrase, strike hated posters. You know, I love posters. Oh, that's so Isn't good, that Michael. chilling, though? And it really, you know, I mean... It's okay, so chilling. So, it's, the, it's brilliant and how perfect. What a perfect... Uh, and and also think about if you're, if you're trying to be empathetic, um, you know, here's a opportunity opportunity, you know, um, through the medium of, um, of a novelist to get a glimpse into the way that this work that so many of us care about so desperately is actually potentially being received by at least part of the audience. So uh, definitely food for thought and something to, uh, uh, you know, sober up by. Don't do this, maybe. So. <laughs> And now a word from our sponsor. This episode of The Observatory is sponsored by Designers and Books. Designers and Books is an advocate for books as important sources of inspiration for creativity and innovation. They publish book lists, public programming, and book fairs. And they reissue out-of-print design classics, support the launch of important new books by notable designers, and sponsor other online and offline book-related initiatives in support of the design community. For more information, visit designersandbooks.com. And I'd like to just add here that they are sponsoring a panel discussion on May 19th, if you're going to be in New York City. I will be joined by Paula Scherer, by Veronique Vienne, by uh, Gina Bell, our editor at Design Observer, and by Julie Lasky. And we're going to talk about my new book, which comes out on May 24th. So if you're going to be in New York, please join us at the Strand Bookstore, uh, 7 o'clock on May 19th.
So we've been talking uh, about fairly um, uh, serious matters and even depressing matters for uh, a bit now. And um, it occurred to me that it might be fun just to talk about something that we're really taking pleasure about. And I'd like to inaugurate this as a new thing we can do on this um, on this podcast. I'd love to hear like what you saw since the last time we talked that really uh, gave you new hope about design. I have a nominee that I'm holding in my hand right now. It's um, a book called On Broadway from Rent to Revolution, written by a designer named Drew Hodges. If you know anything about Broadway theater, you know Drew Hodges' work through the work of his firm Spotco. Spotco is um, an ad agency here in New York City that's the leading and certainly the best ad agency for Broadway shows. As the subtitle says, Drew and his firm came on the scene doing all the graphics for the breakthrough musical Rent a couple decades ago, and their most recent triumph was doing all the graphics for um, Hamilton, uh, which is the um, uh, revolution part in the subtitle. And what makes the book so great is that not only does it have beautiful, interesting, striking work, not only does it show some really interesting process things, including photo shoots leading up to the portraits you see in the shows and sketches and rejected options, and not only is it kind of an object lesson of how you can reduce complex subject matter to a single indelible image and do it in the most public possible way. But they've gone through the trouble of interviewing all sorts of different people, uh, directors and playwrights and actors about their role in the design process. So it's, um, it's one of those things where you're actually, um, you know, looking at the images and then you'll read w what Sutton Foster thought when she was being photographed for Anything Goes or what Lin-Manuel Miranda kind of gave as his brief to the firm when they were doing the graphics for Hamilton. So it's this really great, interesting series of case studies about design where the results were just ravishing, if you ask me. But you really are getting this, you know, classic backstage, behind the scenes, quite literally, uh, look at um, this part of the process of making theater, which is the part that I think, as designers, we find fascinating. So it's new from Rizzoli, Drew Hodges, On Broadway, introduction by David Sedaris, forward by Chip Kidd, and contributions from a bajillion Broadway names that kind of make this whole thing just like eating a giant box of candy. If you're feeling depressed, this book will cheer you up, I promise you. Okay, so here's mine. Uh, I uh, am an incorrigible Anglophile, as many people know. I'm also a Francophile. So uh, I am watching with... <laughs> just a file. You were I just, just a straight-up file. I'm just going to file my way through. I am watching, <laughs> binge-watching, with just incredible joy, uh, a series the BBC made uh, a few years ago called The Paradise. Now, this is based on an Emile Zola novel about a department store. It was originally called Au Bonheur des Dames, which means The Happiness of Women. It was translated as The Ladies' Paradise. It looks at the late 19th century, which was a period of great transformative change in the culture of France when, after Haussmann had rebuilt Paris. And it's in many ways a soap opera. It's an upstairs, downstairs story. It's about class difference and so forth. Zola, in his notebooks, talked about looking at the department store as a social construct that was about how commerce had replaced the church, that the department store replaced the kind of religion of the 18th century. And he talked about the beauty 
and the, the women and the way people walked through spaces, but it compartmentalizes those spaces, right? It has an incredible design cultural history component if you're interested in this sort of thing as I am. And I'm just loving it. It's wonderful. Um, I, I will definitely check that out. You know, there's a, um, um, there's, if you're actually an Anglophile as well, there's a, uh, that show, Mr. Selfridge, you know that one too? This is so much better. Really? Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. This is the real deal. This is, it's just the acting is superb. There's all sorts of actors I did not know. One better than the next. Uh, the costumes are incredible. The stories, every time you think you know what's going on, you don't. And there's all these gestural moments about, you know, the birth of photography and the fascination with the occult and all of these things that were rampant in late 19th century culture and, and all, all told through the lens of a cityscape and the store as this kind of container for, for these varied lives. It's really, I, I, it's just fantastic. Uh, we turn now back to something sad, and this is something that I think we should just touch on. Uh, it's been much commented on by the rest of the world and continues to be, but it's the death of Prince Rogers Nelson, the performer who died at the age of 57, known to the world as Prince. Um, I mean, no one really was as personally invested in controlling the way his career and his music and his art and his image was um, projected to the world than Prince, and uh, most notoriously, and almost, you know, to some people comically, he uh, at one point changed his name from Prince to an unpronounceable glyph of his own design. He sent out a million floppy disks that had a single file on it. Each one had a single file on it, and that file was the artwork for this glyph, so henceforth every single uh, press mention could now you know, incorporate this symbol. Talk about someone being conscious of their own image to the point where they decided to deploy like brand identity, corporate identity, symbol making to this degree. I mean, I can't think of anything remotely similar to this in the history of uh, certainly entertainment. I mean, it just is uh, completely crazy. And uh, and the reason he did it was uh, uh, not just to be perverse or to be uh, uh, kooky or as a publicity stunt, but he did it deliberately to... Uh, um, thwart the contract he had at that point with Warner Music, where he felt they were impeding his ability to release his uh, music the way he wanted, and he uh, was so irritated by the fact that they claimed to own his name that he said, you don't own my name, no one owns my name, in fact, I don't even have a name, this is my name from now on. Certainly a lot of his other music certainly uh, you know, was influential. I think as a gesture, this was just something that only he could do and no one else could possibly even uh, remotely imitate. I mean, this is before emojis. But here's where I think this relates to the larger ethical issues we've been talking about today. The idea that we are all of us reduced to something extremely primal, a mark, a logo, a dot, a line. When you connect that with identity, that's when you get into these questionable issues of where design meets ethics. Like, who am I? How do I represent? Who will read me as this thing? Does it have to be easily recognizable? I mean, this is the whole history of branding is, is part of this, too. I went earlier this week to a screening of a film uh, that's made by two men, a guy named Rob Moss, who heads the Visual and Environmental Studies program at Harvard and a man named Peter Gallison, who's a historian of science, MacArthur winner. And together they've made, this is their second film together, and they've made a film called Containment. 
Uh, it's won a lot of awards. I thought it was very problematic. It's it's kind of a hot mess. It, it took a number of years to make. It has too many voices and many inconsistencies. But the point of the film is that following the Cold War, there's 100 million gallons of radioactive sludge that has to be put somewhere. And their film asks one question, which is, how will we mark radioactive oh, waste oh. for future generations? Now, the we don't know what languages so we'll speak in 10,000 yeah, years. Yeah, we don't yeah, know yeah. what people will look like. Will it be a visual language? Will it be a verbal language? Will it be a cultural language? Will human beings look like they do now? Will we even be a human race in, in 10,000 years? If there was ever a design question that demanded of us really to sit down and take a cold, hard, long, ruthlessly objective look at what we are as a species and what we're making for future generations, it is this film. Many of the people who were asked to come up with these visual languages, none of them are designers you will know or I knew. They're artists, they're humanitarians, they're, they're thoughtful, questioning, scientific people. As I say, from a design perspective, the film is, is not without its problems. Weird animations by Peter Cooper that end up being pretty great but start out pretty weird. Uh, but this is a question in which we have to imagine... Talk about consequence, Michael. This is imagining society 10,000 years from now so that we can create something that will speak across time. So it's part graphic novel, part observational essay, looking at design in terms of the ramifications and consequences of the future. Uh, I think that de demands a certain kind of uh, empathic thinking that maybe we haven't really even begun to discuss yet. I can't wait to see that film, uh, Flaws and All. And what fascinates me about it is that it's making this assumption, this kind of, in, in a way, very optimistic assumption that there's something just so fundamental about the way human beings think and the way we communicate with each other that somehow there are shapes or colors or symbols that would be recognized not just by everyone around the world, no matter what language they speak at this moment, but a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, ten thousand years from now. And it raises just these questions of the questions that every time you're designing a typeface or picking a color or, or doing designing a logo or designing an unpronounceable glyph, you're actually making this assumption that, oh, people will see this and they'll get this feeling. And this sort of like takes that somewhat casual assumption and raises the stakes just through the roof over millennia. And even just as a thought exercise, it's so worth entertaining that it it just is, as you say, it's the ultimate design problem. I'm totally giving this as a design problem to my students. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed, including that 6x9 story from The Guardian. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash theobservatory. That's designobserver.com slash theobservatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to our other podcast, Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Thanks to Designers and Books for sponsoring this episode. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Michael. Thanks, Jessica. Talk to you soon.